this Easter morning, we are delighted to remind you again that the message of the coming of the Son of God is not a minor note in a much bigger symphony. In fact, the message of Jesus Christ is the point of all of human history. That sounds a bit bold to some, a complete overreach, but I stand by it. The Bible details the creation of the universe and of our own planet specifically, the creation of man, the tragedy of the sin of man and woman, the cosmic and earthly battles between evil and good, the presence of suffering of all kinds, also the gifts of joy and beauty, relationships with loved ones, and the Bible finally details the ultimate restoration of all that's broken. All of this, all that's come in the past, is moving us toward a day of reckoning that day is necessary in order that restoration would be made possible. This day of reckoning goes by a variety of names, Judgment Day, Day of the Lord, End of the World, the Second Coming, all pointing to the exact same experience. The Bible makes clear that God has been and is even now at work through His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring everything to a close and to ultimately restore righteousness and the rule of God and the rule of righteousness among the people that God has redeemed. This truth can be seen on every single page of Scripture from the first man and woman until today. There have always been at least three kinds of responses to this message of God's love and judgment. Three kinds of responses. We see that plainly in the passage I want to invite you to study with me this morning. Acts 17, the book of Acts chapter 17. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 22, Acts 17. This is uh, one of the most famous paragraphs in the book of Acts, maybe even in all of the New Testament, because it details Paul's encounter preaching encounter, teaching encounter with one of the uh, world's greatest uh, groups of deep and esoteric thinkers ever assembled, otherwise known as the Areopagus or the court of the Areopagus in Athens, Greece. Paul is in Greece. He has been working his way across the Greek world preaching and teaching, talking of Christ. He's been going to small towns, larger towns, small cities. And finally, now by the 17th chapter of Acts, a journey that has begun several chapters before, culminates in the great city of Athens. Athens is uh, perhaps one of the great cities that a uh, civilized world has ever known, famous for a lot of things, most of which uh, don't exactly please the heart of God, but nonetheless, uh, there's a, a gathering of wise men 
that uh, make Athens home. Athens is famous for its uh, group of philosophers who would gather together and talk about all kinds of, of uh, strange things, strange to folks that are just trying to make a living and go about their daily lives and not worried about uh, the meaning of life and so forth. But there are, there's no end to philosophers and, and people who are interested in understanding the meaning of life and the meaning of sorrow and the meaning of suffering and so forth. These people exist today. They exist on the opinion pages of uh, every significant major newspaper. They exist on your television screen when you watch cable news. Uh, the world is still full of philosophers. The New York Times bestseller list is full of people who write from a secular worldview. They think about the world without regard to God or without regard to deep understanding of the things of God. They try to uh, understand everything without uh, even giving uh, the knowledge of God a possibility. And so those kinds of people have always been, and they were present in Acts 17. Uh, you'll note a reference in this passage we're going to read to uh, the Areopagus, that's a, a big word. Uh, the Areopagus could mean one of two things. Uh, first of all, there is a, an outcropping that overlooks the city, sort of a uh, place where people would gather together and you could, you could sort of climb up on a rock and speak to people around you. That actually is called Mars Hill, Mars Hill. Uh, that's the transliteration of uh, the, the Greek word Areopagus. The Areopagus was, first of all, a hillside. But secondly, it is a court. It is a court that uh, is in charge of civil uh, rule over Athens as well as religious rule over Athens. Athens would have easily qualified as the most religious city of its day. Uh, they had idols for this and that. Of course, the Parthenon is there, a, uh, uh, if you will, a magnificent structure that was... Uh, torn down, destroyed by uh, a marauding king back in the 5th century B.C., but rebuilt even larger. So the ruins of the Parthenon that you visit today uh, is, is version 2.0 and uh, even larger than the original model. So Athens is dominated by religious and civil leaders who served in the court of the Areopagus. That's where Paul finds himself in Acts 17, speaking to folks that have far more education than I do, and yet far less informed. Paul is going to remedy that today. Let's read Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in the Parthenon, oh, excuse me, in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he, gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I want to consider with you this morning the word all, A-L-L. You'll note that it's used in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's used again in the next verse, verse 31. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I want to ask the simple question, what part of all includes you? Where are you in this story of all? Now, Paul is speaking to a group of people, and he wants to move them toward God. Frankly, that's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to move you toward God. You may say, well, God and I are just fine. Well, first of all, that's a silly statement. You are fine, except you're not. Because you're not yet wholly holy. You You just have an imputed holiness. That's a righteousness that God has given to you. Thanks be to God. But he's continuing to sandpaper every last one of us. He chastens us and he prunes us. He's growing us. He's he's crushing us. He's disciplining us. He's doing all of these things simultaneously in, in a strategy that makes perfect sense to God and to us just feels like pain or difficulty. And you say, well, why won't God leave me alone? Because he loves you. The same reason you won't leave your children alone. You're 16-year-old every now and then will look at you and say, why don't you leave me alone? The answer is because that's never going to happen. Not when you love someone. You're never going to leave them alone. You're going to care about them. You're going to be invested in their lives. The problem with us as earthly parents is we have limited resources. God doesn't suffer from that problem. We have limited access. God doesn't suffer from that problem. I want to remind you then that God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's at work in your life. You say, everything's great with me and God. Well, I will tell you, there's a new shade of great waiting for you. And I want to move you toward God today in a way that will encourage you, bless you, remind you what God has done for you. While at the same time challenging those who may be here who don't have a relationship with God, or perhaps have drifted from God, find themselves distant from God. In Paul's message here in this paragraph that we've read, he he makes two points. I want to 
go ahead and steal his sermon for just a minute and help you to see his points. The first point that he makes is that the unknown God has revealed himself. The unknown God can be known. You'll note uh, here in verse 24, he begins to detail how God has made himself known. Number one, he says in verse 24, he made the world. How do you know what God is or who God is or what God can do or what God is doing? Well, you could begin by noticing the world. Did you note yesterday we had a pink moon last night? Susan and I were out right about uh, dusk and the moon was coming up and it was beautiful, beautiful. I took a moment in my private life and said, glory to God. It's a beautiful moon. Uh, how did that moon get there? I have no idea. What keeps it there? Well, I know there would be people who would say, Brother Greg, if you'd paid more attention in physics, you would know what keeps it there. Maybe. But I assure you, friend, it's there. And you can actually build a calendar around it. <laughs> it's amazing. All my life, it's always been there. The sun came up this morning. Couldn't see it because of the clouds. But we can see the effects of it. God has made the world. He tells us again in verse 25, another aspect of God. He's not needy, served by human hands, though he needed anything, because he gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. In other words, who is God? Well, God is not a receiver from me. He is a giver to me. God has not received anything to me, from me, other than my worship, my magnifying Him in my heart, making much of Him. That's all I can offer God. He is not needy. Verse 26, he says, God has made every person. He's also created every nation. Verse 29, he further explains God and says that He is not bound by the imagination of man. So God cannot be pictured in a statue or a tree or a mountain or a bunch of rocks or precious metals, gold, silver, etc. Can't do all of that. So the unknown God has revealed himself. We know a bit about him because he has revealed himself in all of these different things. And he has demanded that we worship him in knowledge, that we actually worship him in light of his revelation. We don't worship the moon. We worship the God who created the moon. We don't worship the sun. We worship the God who created the sun. We don't worship the, the effects of God or the power of God. We worship God. So he has demanded that we worship him. He makes this point, verse 30, the times of ignorance are gone. Ignorance. Now, that word ignorance causes some people to stumble. But uh, I want to assure you, it, it doesn't mean that you're incapable of learning. It doesn't mean you're somehow mentally or intellectually challenged. That's not what that word means. In fact, it's the exact same word that's used back in verse 23. They're translated as unknown. What therefore you worship as unknown. That's the exact same word translated as ignorant in verse 30. What you worship as because you have not been shown this, not, not, not understood this. You don't see this. 
One of my objectives this morning is to help those of you who have never seen the glory of God, the beauty of God, the wonder of God, the majesty of God, to actually see it. I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. And I pray that He will do that, that He will take away the blinders of ignorance. We have not seen, but now we do. He also commands in verse 30 that we repent that we turn away from our sins and we turn to Him, that we turn away from that which is destructive and turn to that which is life-giving, to repent. In verse 31, He tells us that He has established a day of judgment. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. He has demanded that we worship Him in knowledge. We know that there's a day coming. We know that we've been commanded to repent, and we know that the times of ignorance are gone. I am now accountable for the fact that God has shown me these these things, shown me Himself, shown me His Son, shown me the work of His Son, shown me the teachings of His Son. I'm now accountable for these things, even as you. And this is a requirement for all people. That's the point that we see plainly here. There's a second point that Paul makes in his talk or sermon, if you will, and that is that this unknown but now revealed and knowable God has fixed a day of judgment by a man of his choosing. God has determined the judge that's going to hear your case. God has decided who that will be. And Paul is announcing to the men of the Areopagus, and I'm announcing afresh to you, perhaps, this same truth, that God is determined that His own Son will hear your case. And He has proven this by raising Him from the dead. You say, well, what difference does that make? (laughs) Well, again, friend, the point, of course, is that Jesus has credentials to hear your case. Jesus has qualifications to hear your case. Jesus knows about you and your circumstance. How would he know that? Because he is the Son of God. Well, how do you know he's the Son of God? Because he was raised from the dead, unlike the people in your orbit or my orbit. The constellation of people that I have loved in my life, their bodies are still in their graves. But that is not true of the Savior. He and He alone was raised from the dead, and beyond that, now sits at the right hand of the Father. He has interaction with God. He has access to God. And by means of Christ, I have access to God. Now, because of Christ, I can call my God Father. I have a new status, a new relationship based on the work of Jesus. What credentials does Jesus have? Well, he's the Son of God, and he came to earth, he lived a holy life, and he died in my place. He died because of me and my sins. And then God raised him from the dead in order that he shall elevate the person of Christ and say, this is the one to whom you will look. This is the one before whom you will stand. Paul makes this point to these men of the Areopagus that they too will stand in judgment. All of which brings us back to the three responses to his sermon or to his talk. And we should examine our own response. I want you to note, beginning in verse 32, 
The scripture says that when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Now, mockers, I I suspect we don't really need much of an explanation for that, so I'll save you all. But mockers masquerade as all kinds of other groups as well. Mockers qualify as cynics, and cynics qualify as mockers. Sometimes mockers are just critics. Sometimes they're just unbelievers who don't know, never heard, sort of getting used to the idea kind of thing. So admittedly, there are, on a scale of one to five or so, there are various degrees of mocking. But there are mockers in our culture today. The notion that God is God and has authority over your life is soundly and roundly mocked. The notion that God would give his only son and that his son was perfect is mocked. And that his son would die a criminal's death and somehow that's virtuous. That's roundly and soundly mocked in our culture. And then of course, that God would raise him from the dead. Never heard of that before. Surely that's a fable. It's a figment of people's imagination. Some mocked when Paul got to the part in the story of Christ about the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is troubling. The resurrection of the dead is offensive because if Jesus is truly the one who was raised from the dead, he does have credentials. He's got credentials I don't have or you don't have. Your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents don't have. Your loved ones have gone before you. All the great men and women the world's ever known, none of them been raised from the dead, but this one has. There are lots of reasons giving for mocking. People are just not interested. They just don't believe. They think the whole story is foolish. They think you Christian people are a bunch of ignorant people. You're weak. You're gullible. You're naive. You'll believe anything. You've been trained a certain way, and you're no more reliable than a trained animal who just does what he's taught to do. They're also angry. Mockers are at times because God has not met their expectations. By this time, I expected X, or by this time, I expected Y. Or maybe, you know, I was, had some loved ones who had some trouble, and I prayed and sought God's help, didn't know God, never really paid a lot of attention to God. But if there is a God, he should come to my rescue now because I need him. I didn't need him six weeks ago, but I need him now. So, hey, why didn't he show up? So God doesn't meet expectations And then, of course, the ultimate get-out-of-jail card for all mockers is the question of evil and suffering. You know, if God is God and God is good and God is love and all that stuff that you people talk about, then tell me why is there so much evil in the world? And how could a good God actually give His only begotten Son? After all, why in the world would I believe that? I wouldn't do that. Well, friend, that there be the point. That's the point. Why would God do that? Because he's not you. And in God's economy, 
when you need a Savior and there's none to be found except one. He's going to send that one. Regardless. So mockers were present in Athens and they're present today. Maybe they're present in this very room. You've spent your life mocking the notion of religion, of a loving God, of a faithful Savior, and that you don't need Him. You may be in that category. I would say to you, friend, the exact same thing that Paul said to his audience, and that is God commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands you to believe, and God will hold you accountable for not believing. There is a day of judgment coming, and the one whom you are rejecting today is going to be your judge. Now, I will tell you that if you were going to stand before a judge locally, somebody at the courthouse, and you spent, uh, let's just say, the, the last 30 days before your trial uh, gathering an audience of people day after day after day, talking about how worthless or faithless the judge was, mocking the judge that you're going to stand before, that probably is a recipe for disaster. Your case is going to end up right where you don't want it to end up because of what you've done and said about the judge. But here we are. We want to stand before God one day, and we want everything to be okay. But we spend our entire lives mocking him, his son, his plan, his love, his power, and even the resurrection of the dead didn't convince us. One day, oh dear friend, you'll stand before the very one you mock today. I urge you to do exactly what Paul says here, and that is to repent, to turn away from yourself and turn to God and claim his forgiveness. I can tell you as a believer myself, there was a time in my life when I was an unbeliever and God received me. And having received me, I know he'll receive you. Thanks be to God for his mercy. Thanks be to God for his forgiveness. There are many who might find fault with my life, and they would be right. And there would be many who would find fault with your life, and they may be less or more right. But I assure you, friend, God finds fault with your life and fixes it, solves it, gives you a solution. And that solution is the righteousness of his own son. Look to him today. Turn from your sin and turn to the one who has been raised from the dead. There is a second category in verse 32 of people in this category called all. Others said, it says, we will hear you again about this. It's a little hard to know exactly the level of interest here. There is no uh, return visit of Paul to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, recorded in the Scripture, so we don't know the detail. Maybe he came back the next day or the next day or the next day, a week later. We don't know the details of that. But uh, we can certainly, uh, if you will, make some assumption. There is a category of people that said, we'll hear you again. 
We're interested, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. So maybe you're here today, and you're not a full-fledged mocker. You're not full-fledged scornful toward Christ, but you're, you're, you're interested, but, you know, maybe not. A little lukewarm, perhaps. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe, you know, life is just, just busy. You got a lot going on. You got a lot of responsibility, a lot of people counting on you, or a lot of things you want to achieve or do or, or experience. And, you know, you're just distracted. Maybe you're just busy, just, just real busy. You know, it's just, I got to work. I got to take care of my family. I got to take care of my responsibilities here and there. Maybe I have extended family responsibilities. All of those are noble and right and good. Nobody's throwing rocks at any of that. But somehow in the midst of all of that, you're just too busy for God, too busy for his son, too busy for this resurrection story. Interesting, in Matthew 13, which is the parable of the sower, you remember a sower goes out to seed, uh, to sow, and he, he sows seed on four different kinds of ground. The, the third category is uh, a, a, a category of ground where they're, they're simply, the, the seed is, is overgrown by weeds or thistles. Yesterday, uh, this week has been Good Friday. Some of you still practice the notion that you plant your garden on Good Friday. So I hope you had a Good Friday. Uh, and I assure you that your garden is not full of weeds yet. But if you don't take care of it, if you don't pay close attention to it, if you don't pay a lot of attention to it, it will be overrun with weeds. And uh, the parable of the sower, Matthew 13 uses that illustration that, in fact, this is what happens. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches are the weeds. And the produce that we long for doesn't happen, can't happen, because there's too much competition. So these people who say, we'll hear you again. There were other ideas. There are other notions there are other levels of truth in their minds. And there is a competition going on in their mind. And they are perhaps searching for the truth, but, but they're not willing to land on the truth. Maybe that's where you are here today. Maybe this whole notion of the resurrection doesn't seal the deal for you. Maybe you need more proof. Clearly, in the New Testament, there were many, dare we say most, who, in spite of the resurrection, in spite of the validation of the resurrection, in spite of the proof of the resurrection, still needed more proof. That's not enough. Raising someone from the dead, which has never happened before, is not enough for me. He could have done that with smoke and mirrors. He could have done that, and there's all kinds of books being written uh, about how that could have been done. There's, just, there's this famous theory that Jesus didn't really die, just was swooning. He, he passed out, and uh, they buried a, a living man. The only problem with that, of course, is that the Romans had an appeal from the Jewish leaders. Remember, the Jewish leaders brought the charge against Jesus before the Roman leader, and they said, we would love for you to station Roman guards in front of that big rock that seals the tomb because we think his disciples are going to come and steal the body. So they put Roman guards in front of the tomb. And then, of course, Sunday morning, when the ladies get there to prepare his body, 
with spices for, for, for proper burial, the stone is rolled away and the guards are still there. They don't have an explanation. It's a mystery. Really, you're a professional soldier and I don't know, these Galilean dudes, you know, fishermen dudes, they came in the middle of the night while you guys were snoozing or something and they rolled this rock away. I bet that's a pretty subtle thing. You know, a rock that weighs hundreds of pounds, makes no noise whatsoever in the middle of the night. Rolling that thing, I mean, sure. You guys, I don't know, you took no doze or something or maybe too much doze, who knows. You, you, you took something and you just slept, slept, slept through it. See, these kind of theories just don't hold water. You can explore every last one of them. Friend, you can say, well, I'm, I'm searching for the truth. I want to tell you, the Bible declares, friend, while you're searching the day of atonement or the day, rather, of judgment is approaching. I'm not much into fear tactics. In fact, I think it's, for the most part, a wasted effort. But I assure you, friend, I'm a lot closer to death than I was a week ago. I'm a lot closer to accountability than I was a week ago. I'm a lot closer to giving an account for my life, for what I've done. I'm a lot closer to the day of judgment than I was a week ago. You could be disinterested for as long as you can get away with it, but eventually you won't get away with it. You can say, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll be just fine until right up at the last and somehow it'll all work out. Really? That's your plan? Your plan is, I, I bet it's just going to work out? <laughs> I predict, friend, that your plan is going to fail you. You can be disinterested. You can be distracted. You can be too busy but I assure you, one day you'll be too busy. And you'll be so busy that you will miss the only opportunity you have to solve your accountability. I beg of you today, don't be disinterested. Don't be distracted. Don't be too busy. Fall in love with Christ. Fall in love with what he's done for you. What he continues to do for you. How he loves you and cares for you. I make much of it in my own life, and I make much of it here Sunday after Sunday, that right this very minute, Jesus Christ knows my name. I'm not a stranger to God. And he's praying for me by name at the right hand of the Father. That is medicine for my heart. That is, that is a good balm for my soul. To know that Christ knows me, loves me, and cares about me. He, he knows my weaknesses. He knows my physical challenges. Those things that distract me or cause disinterest in me. He knows the things that are, that are warring against, fighting against my deep affection for him. And he is nonetheless praying for me. I want you to fall in love with this Savior. I want you to move out of the category of disinterested or simply distracted and busy and rather fall in love with the Savior who's, who's given himself for you.
the resurrection of the dead, God takes this seriously. And the fact that we don't is ultimately going to be our destruction. How seriously is it? So serious that God gave His only begotten Son to die for sinners. I'm not giving my child for you, and you're not giving your child for me. But the good news is, I don't need your child, and you don't need mine, as long as we have the child of God, the Son. Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. Embrace Him. That's our message to you this morning. Embrace Christ. Stop your searching. Settle down. You found the one who can give you life. But there is a third category, and maybe most of us fall into this category, but I want to challenge you nonetheless to contemplate it. Verse 32 says that some mocked, and others said, we will hear you again. But verse 34 said, some men joined him and believed, and two of them are named, one, one a man, one a woman, Dionysius and Damaris. They are believers. They joined him and believed. They are believers. Now, what separates these categories? Believer, maybe distracted, or maybe disinterested, or downright mocking? What separates these? The answer, of course, is their reaction to the story of the resurrection of Christ. Remember, the, the, if you will, the, the, the bomb that blew up this talk, verse 32, is when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they responded. We heard about this and this and this and this. You're bragging on God and all that God's done and so forth. Yeah, we hear that, we hear that, we hear that. But now you're bringing this ridiculous story about the resurrection of the dead. Some believed the resurrection of the dead has credibility. It has staying power. It has affection in our lives. Let me show you another example of this quickly. Acts chapter 2. Just turn back to the second chapter of Acts. Here, Peter is preaching. It's on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has been crucified and resurrected some seven weeks earlier. The day of Pentecost occurs seven weeks after Passover. So, Jesus crucified on the weekend of Passover. Now it's the weekend of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Notice Peter's sermon, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with, and how did God witness to the power of Christ? With mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he quotes Psalm 16. A little later, he quotes Psalm 110. He quotes Psalm 16. Why, why should that matter to us? You'll note I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. 
Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. In other words, David, who wrote Psalm 16, is prophesying of a day when his descendant, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus of Nazareth, will be born and then die, but will experience eternal life. Why is that important? Because God raised him up from the dead because it is impossible for the grave to hold the Son of Almighty God. The plan of God involves the living Son. And Jesus qualifies to live, not die. He died because of me, but he lives because of him. What separates believers from unbelievers? They see the beauty of this, the glory of this, the majesty of this, and the love of this. That God in his fullness would give his only son. That should overwhelm you this morning. But God in his power and his holiness and his righteousness is committed to bringing honor to the one to whom honor is due. And that is his son who came to earth, died in my place. But God raised him from the dead as validation of a job that's finished, of, of a task that is perfectly accomplished. I urge you today to consider the implications of the resurrection in your life. What is God saying in the resurrection? He's saying, of course, that the sacrifice of Jesus is righteous. The sacrifice of Jesus is accepted. And that he has credentials now to serve as my judge and your judge on the day of judgment. One day, we'll all be believers. But some will be believers not entering into righteousness, not entering into glory, not entering into eternal life. But some will be believers as they exit the day of judgment, having received the judgment that they have justly deserved. Believers know that the Savior died for their sins. The Savior was raised for their salvation. And we will exit the day of judgment not, not because our sins didn't matter, but because our sins were covered over by the blood of the Savior. The work of Christ for me is to cover my sins, to forgive me of my sins, and to restore me to God. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who created me. The God who sustains me. And the God who prospers me in this life. Not in the way the world measures prosperity, but in the way God measures prosperity. He gives me peace and comfort. He gives me hope. These things are worth more than anything the world can offer me. Why is the world in such shape today? Because increasingly, the world is less and less inclined toward God. Ah, you say, well, Brother Greg, you're just a preacher. We expect no less from a preacher. Guilty, friend. I'm a preacher. Well, let me tell you something straight. 
You're not going to be comfortable in this world. You're not. Because this world is increasingly more chaotic. All the boundaries are being moved. All the structures or institutions that used to give us stability are all being moved. Invariably, the mind of man is going where the mind of man didn't used to go. And invariably, we find ourselves in a deeper ditch, not a more shallow one. And the dirt is dirtier, and the mud is muddier, and the water is rancid, and it just smells a whole lot like a place we don't want to be. And somehow, we're supposed to be impressed with what the world has to offer. I want to tell you, friend, when God raised His Son from the dead, He reminded you that He loves you enough to rescue you from all the dirt and the mud of your making or of someone else's making in your life or of circumstances that are way beyond our pay grade or our control. Ultimately, the only people who have hope, the only people who have comfort, the only people who can see beyond this world are the people who see beyond this world. Paul is prophesying here to the men at the Areopagus because they have this get-out-of-jail card. We've got an idol to an unknown God. Just in case in the pantheon of other gods, it was estimated, by the way, that the Greeks had 30,000 deities. 30,000. Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you've got a list that has 30,000 gods on it, 29,999 aren't God. After all, the very definition of God is your ultimate. And when you're ultimate, there's no one above you. There's no one equal to you. But nonetheless, they had a get-out-of-jail card or get-out-of-hell card known the unknown God. We have got a statue to the unknown God because we might have missed one. There might be 30,001. Well, friend, that's not the way to cover your base. That's not the way to find joy, to think, well, you know, I might, I might, I might. I could have, could have, could have. No, friend, we need something we can stand on that's solid. We need the truth. And the truth is, Jesus was dead because of your sin and my sin, and he was raised from the dead because of the holiness and righteousness of God, the power of God to, to give forgiveness to those who would look to the one that he raised from the dead. It is not possible for the grave to hold the Son of God. No matter what Satan can throw at Jesus, God is greater than, bigger than, more powerful than anything Satan can do. And for those of us who align our lives as believers who have turned from our sins and turned to the forgiveness of sin in Christ, we have the same status. I'm grateful today for the mercies of God found in the power of God to raise His Son and subsequently to raise me who leans on His Son. One day I'm going to stand before God He's never going to ask me about my list of credentials.
The only credential that matters is whether or not I've come to believe in His Son and to look to Him, to hope in Him, to trust in Him. We beg of you today, in light of the resurrection, not men of Athens, but people who gather together here in a small place, in a small context compared to Athens. He's asking us the same question. How's the day of judgment going to go for you? Are you going to be a scoffer? Are you just going to be a little bored or busy or tied up or complacent or apathetic? Are you going to be a believer who understands that the resurrection is the ultimate exclamation point on your life? I trust today that you're counted as a believer. May God give us grace to believe Him all the more. Pray with me. Father, I thank You today for the mercies that we've enjoyed this morning. Thank You for the fellowship of this room and the fellowship of this church. But none of this, Father, compares the fellowship that we have with You. Ultimately, our peace is with You. Ultimately, our help comes from You, our hope. Father, is in your strength and your love and your affection for us. I pray, Father, you would awaken us, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and that we would come to put our trust in Christ. We're delighted, Father, to call you Lord. Thank you for the gift of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.